Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in it to Paul's epistle to the Thess- Thessalonians, his first epistle to the Thessalonians. And as we have been working our way through this book and will continue to do so through his second letter to the Thessalonians, tonight we come to chapter 4. And uh, this is a passage I have been assigned, chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Now, although I'm going to deal with all of these verses, I would say, in somewhat of a cursory way, I really want to focus primarily upon verse 1 of chapter 4 because it is such a transitional uh, verse. So then, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, hear the word of the true and living God. Paul writes and he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers. And the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you be so kind as to join me in prayer and to pray with me for the ministry of the word? Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we cry out to you this evening because we sense our own felt need of your gracious assistance from above. And I ask, O God, that you would be pleased to send your spirit upon people and preacher alike. Enable us, Father, to understand and to grasp what you are saying to us in this passage. 
and then wonder of wonders work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. And so, Father, we ask that you would grant us understanding and insight from above. And I pray, Father, that you would be pleased to grant the gift of utterance to the good of your people this evening. For I offer this, my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we begin our study of chapter 4 and the rest of 1 Thessalonians this evening, please notice that there is a decisive connection between this passage and the last three verses of chapter 3. It's important for us to bear in mind that when the Apostle Paul wrote, he did not write in chapters, indeed not even in paragraphs. Rather, he wrote simply in what we call today, there's a Latin term for it, it's called scriptio continua, a style of writing uh, without spaces uh, or other marks between the words and the sentences, as well as the absence of punctuation. And scriptio continua was the norm of the day for writing, and such divisions that we have in our Bibles today have been offered to help us in our understanding and in the location of passages in our Bibles. And though we might be prone to criticize the artificial divisions that we have in our modern day Bibles, uh, if you've ever read a New Testament where they have excluded all divisions, your gratitude for such divisions is restored for them when you consider the difficulty of reading a text that's written in scriptio continua. Uh, but in spite of the problem of artificial uh, divisions, notwithstanding, they are still helpful to all of us. But as we read, let us keep in mind that these divisions were not part of the original. And if we forget that, I think we can miss the benefit of recognizing the connection between certain artificial divisions we have. And the connection between the last three verses of chapter 3 and chapter 4 is simply this. Paul, having recorded for us in his prayer at the end of verse 10 of chapter 3, his desire, he expresses it, to see the Thessalonians face to face, to supply what is lacking, he says, in their faith. And in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 3, he records this desire. Having prayed for that, he now longs for that to take place. And if you pray for something and you long for it, the proof that your prayer was genuine and your longing was real is that you will proceed to do something to put feet to your prayer and fulfill your longing if it's within your power to do so. And so if he prays to supply what is lacking in their faith and he longs for that reality, then it follows naturally then in chapter 4 that he begins to set before his readers some of the ways whereby what is lacking in their faith 
might be supplied in the way of knowledge and experience. For we see in chapters 4 and 5 that Paul addresses certain issues primarily to the mind for the understanding and other issues are directed to the feet and their hands as to how they are to live. Now, generally speaking, the theme of chapters 4 and 5, the latter part or the second part of Paul's letter, uh, beginning with this word finally in verse 1 of chapter 4, is this matter of seeking more and more to live after a pattern of practical godliness. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. So that's the theme, how to walk, that is, how to live more and more in a pattern of practical godliness which pleases God. Thus, whatever is touched upon or treated in these last two chapters of Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians is related to this theme of seeking more and more a pleasing walk in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul makes this plea, this exhortation with a presupposition that he is addressing himself to Christians. He speaks to them as brothers. He's not informing them as to how to enter into life, but rather he is telling them how they are to live in life. As a Christian, he assumes the posture of one who pleads with them by the authority of Christ. Now, if we're to exegete or explain and understand correctly and apply chapters 4 and 5 of this epistle, we find a number of prominent or key words, I think, in these verses that we should note and understand, particularly in Verse 1 of chapter 4. And I want first to first of all consider tonight this word ought. Paul wrote that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. And that word ought in the original is a word of constraint. It is a word of obligation, of necessity. Thus what we ought to do is what we must do. In other words, walking in a manner that pleases God is not an optional matter. It's, a, it's mandatory. It is mandatory not only because God is our creator, but even more because he is our redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the next word addresses how we ought to walk. Paul was not giving them directions as to how to gain or come by some extraordinary spiritual experience that would solve all of their problems as Christians. He never so much as hints or countenances any such notion anywhere in his epistles. One of the greatest arguments against those who teach 
that if only all of us as Christians could have some kind of glorious experience, no matter what they call it, whether it's a second work of grace or a baptism of power, if such a thing was the answer to the needs of Christian believers, somewhere in his epistles to these churches, with all kinds of needs, we would expect the apostle to be informing the people of this. But contrary to all such notion, he gives them instead detailed instructions of how to walk. Namely, the framing of one's entire life according to the mind and will of God as revealed in Holy Scripture. But contrary to all of that, that's what he does. And then the key word here is how. Notice verse 1, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk. In other words, he's going to give them an agenda of godliness. He gave them what we might say rules for a godly life. And there needs to be specific direction because there is no simple formula for a life which is characterized by godliness. There is no one chapter in the Bible that operates as a sort of open sesame or magical key to spiritual victory. No such passage exists. In Holy Scripture. Therefore, we should beware, you and I, of any so called Christian life teaching that plays one note on its piano as though it were some kind of mystical shortcut to a wonderful spiritual experience that will elevate one to a higher plane of Christian living. Rather, just like the standard piano has. What is it? Some 88 keys, a standard piano. It has 88 keys. In order to sound forth the beauty and the harmony uh, or harmonious relationship of all of the various chords on that piano, we have detailed instructions given to us by the Apostle in Holy Scripture as to how we are to walk and to please God. <clears throat> now then, with that introduction please notice secondly a combination of words the paul, paul writes that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please god now in these words to please god we have set before us by the apostle the motive for holy living the Apostle Paul is going to give instructions about holy living, practical godliness, how to walk, what to do. And at the very outset, he sets before his readers this principle that the highest motivation for the Christian is to please God. Now, he just think of all of the things that the Apostle Paul could have said. He could have said, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and be happy or and be successful or 
be useful, or and be content. Many times these are the things put forth for believers while exhorting them to godly living. Do you want to live a happy, full life with a capital L? Then here's how. No, the motivation that the Apostle Paul sets before the Thessalonian believers as well as us, indeed the incentive for godly living is this, that they might bring pleasure to their God. That's what pleasing God means, to bring pleasure to our God. That's precisely what the word here in the original means. It's the word arisco. It's the same word used in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. When the apostles, you'll recall, solved that problem of the daily distribution of uh, essentials among the widows with the selection of deacons. There we read that when they did so, it pleased the whole gathering, or the whole congregation. It's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 8 and verse 8 when he declares emphatically that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, Paul uses the same word of the married man when he writes of the married man and he says he is anxious about worldly things, how to please God. His wife. Moreover, it's the same word used earlier in this very same epistle, chapter 2 and verse 15, where it is coupled with a negative that speaks of those who displease God. You see, in all of these instances where that particular word is used, the meaning, I think, is clear. It means to bring delight and pleasure to someone, the kind of pleasure that is commensurate with their character and their disposition. The fact that this multitude of the early Jerusalem church was pleased with a resolution of the apostles for them to appoint deacons indicates to us that they were believers who loved peace and order, and righteousness, and equity. The authoritative declaration of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 regarding the unregenerate nature of those who are in the flesh indicates that they're solely holy they're wholly indisposed by means of their hostility to God that they cannot possibly please Him. Therefore, when we read that pleasing God is the motivation for godly living and for holy walking, we must recognize the reason why living, holy living pleases God is because when we live in that way, we reflect something of the character of God. We are reflecting something of the nature of God. And that's precisely what Peter echoes in his own epistle while quoting the Old Testament book of Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44 as he does so in 1 Peter 1 verses 15 through 16. But as he who called you is holy, 
you also be holy in all of your conduct. Why does holiness please God? It's because it is commensurate with his nature. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And as we begin to study, not just tonight, but these sections 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, and come to some very practical issues that are of great benefit to the church of God. And the first practical issue is one that has sent our whole present generation reeling like an intoxicated man within the church and without the whole problem of sex and marriage. Paul tackles it head on and he sets forth the norm of what the believer's attitude ought to be and how he's to behave with respect to that. The Apostle Paul sets forth, moreover, this matter of brotherly love, and he reinforces that duty and urges the further cultivation of that particular obligation, but not, first of all, informing them that this is something which he... And there's a special term he uses here. Theodidactos, something that God himself has taught them. God has taught them brotherly love. We're taught by God to love the brethren. Furthermore, he addresses in our passage the matter of work and what the matter of our attitude should be to work. Just consider the mess that our present day generation finds itself looking for government handouts or holding contempt for working with one's own hands. Paul as well seeks to restrain the sin of nosiness, instructing them to aspire to live quiet lives by minding their own affairs. In other words, he's telling them, avoid the stress and drama and chaos of gossip and busybodies, and the nonsense which ensues to the hurt and to the division and the disturbance of the peace of God's church. With respect to all of these practical matters, may God grant that we will keep before us that our obedience to these howls of a holy walk should not be rendered with a thought of bringing pleasure to the spiritual leadership of the church, though that's a good thing to do. Not even because it's personally desirable. You know, I, I was talking to some people, I won't disclose the name, but it's been in recent weeks. And they said, you know, we always do better when we go to church. We feel better when we go to church. Well, I'm glad that people feel better when they go to church. But that's not the primary reason to attend church. The primary reason is to please God. It is to bring pleasure to God. And so there is nothing more powerful than this motive to act as the incentive to a true Christian than this. If you do this, it will bring pleasure 
to the heart of your God. And if that motive does not drive you, then the profession of your Christian experience ought to be called into question by yourself. And ask yourself, am I truly a child of God? If I do not have this desire to please God, am I really a child of God? If that motive does not norm your walk, frame the way you live, then you possibly are a stranger to the God whom you profess to serve. And so in dealing with the highest motivation, Paul is setting before us this marvelous reality that as a Christian is one who by the grace of God has been brought into such a relationship with his God that bringing the light to the heart of his God is his greatest ambition. That's what's being driven home by the apostle in this passage. And that is what Paul testified regarding his own service as he expressed it earlier in this very epistle, chapter 2 and verse 4, where he says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests or who examines our hearts. Now, suppose I were to say that here at the beginning of chapters 4 and 5, if you follow the how of godly living in chapters 4 and 5, it will secure for you good health until you reach 80 years of age. Would you sit there... (laughs) I can't imagine doing that, but can you imagine sitting on the edge of your seat and thinking, wow, if I can only follow these, here's a prescription that if I can make it through the next 20, 30, 40 years without being sick, you perk my interest, preacher. I want to hear what you've got to say. I love good health, and I love good health enough to listen to these last two chapters, and I am determined to follow those directives no matter how much it may inconvenience me. Maybe some of you might follow that particular motivation. But you see, a true child of God bypasses all those motivations of health, wealth, prosperity, And the only motivation I hold before you this evening as a minister of the gospel is this. If you followed the directives of chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, you will bring the light to the heart of your God. Compare that to the prosperity parrots of the airways today. If you're a true child of God... What more could you desire than to bring the light to the heart of the Lord your God? That is the motivation for godly living. And if you cannot have that motivation, I would suggest it's because there is no fear of God before your eyes as we read in Romans 3 
and verse 18. What is the fear of God? Have you ever thought about that? I'm not talking about a servile fear of God, but a filial fear of God, the right kind of fear of God. Remember, Solomon tells us in Proverbs that the, fear, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And so suffice it for me to say this is what I basically understand the fear of God to be. The fear of God is that reverent regard for, of God for who he is, which in turn means that the smile of his approval is my most sought-after goal and that the frown of his disapproval is my most restraining motive. That reverent regard of God for who he is, which in turn, loving the light of his smile and hating the darkness of his frown, that always results in a practical desire on my part to possess my life lived consciously under his eye and living in conformity to his commands. That's basically what the fear of God is in its truest sense. The person who lives in the consciousness that above all else, he wants to have the smile of God and would rather die than incur the frown of God. In this posture, one soul produces a practical concern for the commandments and the precepts of, of God. Not merely in external things, mind you, that can be seen of men, but in all the circumstances of one's life. We know that we live before the eye of Almighty God, Coram Deo, before the face of God. And the burning issue that motivates the child of God is this desire above all else to please God. So Paul holds that up before us in verse 1 as the desire for godly living. And that motive is what drives all of the directives that Paul in turn gives us. Now then there's another word I want to call to your attention Notice again the language of the apostle. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. If pleasing God is the motive for godly living, then the commandments which follow are the directive for godly living. Well, this word translated instructions here in the ESV, sometimes translated as commands or commandments in other versions, is found one other time in this epistle in its verb form in verse 11 of our passage. But it's also found some four times in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 alone. Four times in chapter 3 of Paul's next epistle to the Thessalonians. But let's look at the other use in verse 11 of our passage. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. And, the, and of course he's telling us not to be busybodies. And to work with your own hands as we 
instructed or as we commanded you. Now just turn the few pages over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And there you see in verse 4, And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Same word. Command. Verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 3. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. Then verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Same word as instructions in verse 2 of chapter 4. Now what does the word command mean? If you consider it carefully, it has at least three elements involved in it. It means in the first place, there's a word of specific direction. When you give a command, you're giving an explicit directive. Do this, don't do that. In each of these instances, it is a directive. Secondly, each of these issues, instances is issued on the basis of a valid authority through the Lord Jesus Christ. We urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Valid authority, okay? That's what he tells us. Verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So then, a specific directive that comes with valid authority does what? And this is the third element in the command. It binds the conscience of the believer to explicit obedience. In other words, once a command is given, the one to whom it is given can only do one of two things. Either rear back on your hind legs and rebel against it in disobedience or bow before it in humble, submissive obedience. Now, an exhortation or a simple plea may not involve this sort of thing. A mere challenge may not involve that matter of a command. But a command binds the conscience of a believer to submissive obedience to a command. And where we find this word used elsewhere in Holy Scripture, for example, in Matthew 10 and verse 5, Jesus instructed or commanded his disciples to do such and such. In Acts 17 and verse 30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Same word. Now, why have I spent this time dealing with with the word instruction or command. Simply to impress you with a word study? No. I'm seeking to engage your mind with the conviction that there is area after area of Holy Scripture where God has clearly spoken and people know what Holy Scripture teaches, but they simply do not care what God says. 
And that's in the church. Indeed, area after area. And I'm not speaking of areas where the will of God is not clear in Scripture. We've all struggled with such passages of Holy Scripture. But I'm speaking of clear-cut areas of God's commands, such as children, honor your father and mother. That is clear-cut. Ephesians 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. And then he goes on to say, for this is the first commandment with promise, that your days may be long on the earth. Now you ask, why am I harping on that? It's because we live in an egalitarian culture today dominated by a mindset that regards such commands as optional for the Christian. Let me tell you this. God will never do for you what he commands you to do. God will never do for you what he commands you. Now, he'll give you the grace to do it, but he's not going to, give you, he's not going to do it for you. God will never do for you what he commands you to do. And he expects your humble, submissive obedience. These are not optional. Be kind. You think that's optional? Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ, valid authority, forgave you. All of these are clear directives. So as we come to the clear directives of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, remember that. Think of the commission of Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 when he said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? To observe all things I have commanded you. That's the task of the servants of Christ that teach professing disciples who had confessed him openly in baptism and had been gathered together in local churches. We're to instruct him, not in some nice little suggestions uh, that Christ might have made, but in terms of the commandments which he has explicitly given. And we are to instruct them to keep them teaching all things, Jesus said, whatever I have commanded you. So if the motivation is to please God, the motivation of love, then I need to be directed to how I might please him. And he gives me specific commandments. You see, God doesn't leave it up to me. And God doesn't leave it up to you as to what to do or how to please him. He tells us in his word. If you have a heart that beats with love for God, then you say, oh God, above all else, I want to please you. As we look at these following passages throughout 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, may God work in our hearts the will and to do of his good pleasure that we may please him. Let us pray.